0: showed you pictures of my family before, but they're here live, and so I wanted to introduce them to you. Is that okay? Um, Kaya, come here, babe. Come here, pumpkin. Come here. Come here, little love. Hi, babe. You see what I have to deal with? What are you gonna do when you grow up, you think? Be a game show host or something? Yeah. All right. Uh, is there anything you would like to say? Would you like to apologize to these people in the front row for dancing your brains out during the music? Ha <laughs> ha, yeah. And, and then this is my wife. She doesn't wanna come up on platform probably, but she can. Oh wait, that's, that's a big step. Oh wow, you did your squats today, huh? Do you want to wave to everyone? No. Okay, babe, that's it. You want to go home? Say bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Can, I have, a ki- can I have a kissy before you go? Yeah. Okay. Love you, baby. Okay, bye. Her, <laughs> I asked her one time, I said, like, what's your puppy's name, babe? She said, Bob. <laughs> Good. Bob the puppy. That's great. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so I just want to introduce you to those guys. They're they're, uh, they're a lot of fun. They're my favorite people to be around. Uh, I, like Michelle said, I pastor a church called Bayview Glen Church in Toronto, Ontario. In the first service, she made the mistake of calling it Bayside Church, which is where Zach Morris and AC Slater went to high school, if you watch Saved by the Bell, so that's not the church I pastor. Uh, but uh, I served here for eight years and I still consider this place home, it's really like coming home. In fact, I talked to Jamie Rasmussen in between services. He is still uh, my pastor and friend and mentor in so many ways. And. One of the privileges that I have uh, coming back here, not really as a guest, as a speaker, but not really as a guest, because I feel like coming, this is coming home, is to kind of deal with some family business. And one of the things that I think we need to deal with uh, in terms of a family is to let you know that uh, our friend and pastor, Jamie Rasmussen, lost his mom this last week. Uh, She went home to be with the Lord, and so he is back home, you know, doing the service and grieving and being around family and all that kind of stuff. And I think in moments like this, it's really critical for us to understand that we are one church, Scottsdale Bible Church, scattered across multiple locations. So Cactus Campus, uh, those in the chapel, those in the venue, those listening online, all of us together We're going to join our hearts together in prayer right now. Is that all right? And lift up our friend and pastor, Jamie, and then we're going to ask that God would reveal himself through his word this morning. Sound good? Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship today, to um, call out to you in song. Thanks for Derek and the team and just his friendship to me and for the ways that they've led us this morning. We are grateful. God, we do lift up Jamie to you. We know that Uh, In this moment, he is grieving, but he is not grieving as those who have no hope. He has a hope of redemption and a hope that all things will be made new one day and that he will be reunited with his mom, but there is a grief there. And so as one church across multiple locations, God, we join our hearts together and we lift up our pastor. God, in this moment where he has given and given and given and given and poured into us in teaching the word and shepherding and pastoring, God, we now... Pour into him in prayer and support and lift him up to you and pray even now that he would feel uh, the burden and the weight of grief lifted because there are thousands of shoulders that call Scottsdale Bible Church their home that share that weight with him. God, and now as we turn our eyes and ears to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears, that we would behold wonderful things from your law today, that this would be your message to your people in the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. amen. There is a comic, his name is Trevor Noah. You may have heard of Trevor Noah. He wrote a book called Born a Crime. And the kind of the premise of the book is it's an autobiography of Trevor Noah's growing up experience in post-apartheid South Africa. In case you're unfamiliar with apartheid South Africa, it was a repressive, suppressive, and really fascist regime that um, kind of overtook and, and squashed people who had the same skin color as my daughter. So Trevor Noah, his mother is black and his father is white, and so he was a mixed race young man who was six years old when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And so even though apartheid was taken apart and deconstructed, some of the habits and practices and and notions and motifs of that culture continued on and perpetuated even after the government went away. And so what Trevor Noah and some of his friends did was they created a dance crew, a hip hop dance crew. Some of them in the dance crew were white, some of them in the dance crew were black, and some of them, like Trevor Noah is, uh, they were mixed race. And they would take this dance crew, this hip hop dance crew, all around Johannesburg, South Africa, and throughout all of South Africa, demonstrating and showing their culture. And one of the individuals in the dance crew, his given name, the name that his mother gave to him, was Hitler. Uh, I know that's a rather unfortunate name, I get that, but if you're a young black man growing up in post-apartheid South Africa, that name Hitler has no social or cultural or historical meaning attached to it. You would not have been familiar with what went on in the Western world. You would not have been familiar with what went on in 1940s Germany. You would not have been familiar with any of that, so as far as you're concerned, that's just a strong German name. Remember, this is a woman who gave her her child this very name, the individual's mixed race, as a matter of fact. And so this dance crew would go around and perform their dances in any different kind of cultural events and things. And for those of you who, who are already a little bit uncomfortable with this story, buckle up. It's about to get a lot more uncomfortable because Trevor Noah and his dance crew, they were called the black and white boys, by the way, were invited to perform at the King David School for Boys and Girls. That's a Jewish school. So Trevor Noah and the black and white boys went to this Jewish school to perform for a cultural day. And as Trevor Noah tells the story, their dance routine was about 15 minutes long. And at about 10 minutes in, the pinnacle, the epic, the best part of their whole dance routine, they would call Hitler out to the middle of this semicircle who would dance, and he was the best dancer, and everybody would go crazy, and everybody would love it. So about 10 minutes in, all of these Jewish boys and girls and these Jewish teachers were gathered together to watch this dance Dance routine, and Trevor Noah, being the DJ, gets on the mic and says, are you ready? And they say, yeah, we're ready. And he says, are you ready? They said, yeah, we're ready. And I don't think they were ready, to be honest. <laughs> and he says, all right, everybody give it up for Hitler. And so Hitler steps out in the middle of the semicircle. And in Trevor Noah's words, Hitler absolutely shuts it down. I mean, the dude could dance. Let's just be honest with you, all right? So he absolutely shuts it down. And one of the teachers jumps up in the middle of this thing and unplugs their sound system. And rightly so. She thought that this group of boys were completely disrespecting her and her culture and her background. And she starts swearing at Trevor Noah. You can't do this. This is ridiculous. You cannot do this. This is horrible. And she's swearing at him. And she says, you got to get out of here. And she says, (coughs) excuse me, I've been a little bit sick. Sorry about that. She says, my people have been fighting your people for generations, and we've been winning. Now, in her mind, she's thinking Jews have been fighting fascist regimes for generations and winning. Praise God, by the way. But in Trevor Noah's mind, he's thinking white people have been fighting black people for generations and winning. That's not right at all. And so here's how Trevor Noah responds. Nelson Mandela says, we're free, so we're free. Which is really fascinating to me because Nelson Mandela is an interesting name to invoke when you are defending your friend Hitler. That's just very strange to me. (laughs) So the woman kicks them out and they said, all right, we're fed up, we're out of here, we're getting out of here. And as they leave, Trevor Noah and the black and white boys were dancing and chanting, Go Hitler, go Hitler, go Hitler. Now listen, some of you like already, you're uncomfortable and that's fine. I'm a guest, they can't fire me anymore. So um, I tell you that story on purpose. And here's the reason, is because if you and I have a different background, if we come from a different cultural context, if we have a different view of history, If we have different experiences, then the same word might mean two radically different things to you and I, you know what I mean? And in this particular case, Trevor Noah and people of his color had been oppressed and repressed by a fascist regime regime in South Africa. And this woman who was a Jewish teacher at this Jewish school, her people had been oppressed and repressed by a fascist regime as well. So if they would have understood one another from a social, cultural, historical background, they would have been on the same team. You understand what I'm saying? You know what I mean? But because they didn't, because they had disparate views of this word, th- 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 then they, had, they got into, as my friend Daryl Delhusay used to say, deep yogurt. Because <laughs> one of them had kind of a positive view, and one of them had kind of a neutral view, and one of them had kind of a negative view, and it caused them to just not even see eye to eye. I want to show you one biblical word, one Bible word, and it comes from the book of Ephesians, that if you and I come in with different backgrounds, different cultural understandings, different family of origin, different marriage experience, different cultural context, historical context, or social context, you might have a really negative view of this word, or you might have a really positive view of this word, you might have a neutral view of this word. But today we're gonna to let the Bible define this word. And here's the word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Today we're talking about submission. Some of you might be wondering, like, is there a parking problem? Are we, is, that's why they asked him to preach on submission, so we have less people here on a Sunday? This is, this is what in the world? Yeah, we're talking about submission because this is what the Bible says. And what I want to do is invite you and ask you to just release how you might have defined this word in the past. The positive notions that you may have, the negative notions you may have, even the neutral notions that you may have, so that we can allow God to speak into our definition of this word. And I wanna be really honest with you here. It's going to be very, very difficult for some of you because for some women in the room, This word has been wielded as a weapon, hasn't it? You've been told to submit to my physicality, submit to my intellect, submit to my authority. And that's not fair, and it's abusive, and it's sinful, and it's wrong. And I know it's not my fault, but I'm sorry. That's not okay. I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. For some men in the room, you have been the individual who has wielded this word as a weapon. And if I tell you what I really think of you and use the language that I want to use, they definitely will not invite me back. (laughs) Because that's wrong and sinful and depraved, and you need to repent and get counseling. But for all of us, I, I can't heal all those wounds in a split second, can I? Right? We can't heal all that together just, just by saying, well, let's, let's just redefine the word. We can't do that. But today, I want to ask you to, to just release maybe what your family of origin has taught you about this word. Release what some whack-job preacher has told you about this word. Release what maybe your first marriage taught you about this word or your current marriage taught you about this word. We're just going to breathe in, breathe out, and release it, and then allow God to define this word Can I ask for your trust here on this one? Are we okay with this? So all of our campuses, venue, cactus, online, um, chapel, and right here in the worship center, we're all going to take a big, deep breath in and then exhale. Ready? Big, deep breath in. Ready? Hold it. Hold it. And exhale. And now we're going to allow God to define this word and reveal to us what Paul is charging the church to do, specifically what he's charging husbands and wives to do in Ephesians chapter five. And it's critical that we see Ephesians chapter 5 within the context of the meta narrative of Scripture. Let me remind you what that is. God created his world perfect. He had an ideal in mind. And when he put it into place, it was perfect. Relationships were perfect. The physical world was perfect. The cosmos were perfect. Unfortunately, that only lasted two chapters, and sin entered into the world and fractured the perfect world that God made. And the Old Testament and then into the New Testament really is just a chronicle of what happens when sin sin breaks God's creation ideal. And God, in his mercy, did not leave the world fractured, and he did not just delete it and start over. Instead, he initiated and inaugurated a kingdom in his son, Jesus. Amen? And his kingdom began 2,000 years ago, and one day he's going to complete his kingdom and restore all things. He'll make all things new. He'll restore them to that creation ideal. And God's creation ideal, when it comes to marriage relationships, really included four aspects that we need to kind of camp out on this morning and understand. And the first one is this. God's creation ideal included gender distinctions, difference between male and female. Men and women are not the same, they are different. And we're not just talking physically or anatomically, we're talking about the ways in which we relate to one another, the ways in which we see the world, moral reasoning, all kinds of different things. We can't get into the details of that this morning. We don't have time, but suffice it to say that men and women are different. We know that because God said this in Genesis, that he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And the author of Genesis wants us to know that male and female, he created him. He Male and female, he created them. He wants us to know, the author of Genesis, that males and females are different, that God's creation ideal included gendered distinctions now Hollywood might tell you something different Instagram might tell you something different those magazines at the grocery store that you see in line might tell you something different but that's not what God says and really that's not even what science says and and, and the, the the difficult part is that uh, this notion of feminist theory began to kind of surface in the 20th century Uh And feminist theory is good in a lot of ways, not in every way, but in a lot of ways. And one of the things that feminist theory did was they began to put their finger on inequality between males and females. They would say stuff like men can vote and women can't. That's not good. Or men get paid more for this job than women do. That's not good. Or men are allowed to oppress women and just get away with it. Well, that's not good. And I agree with that. I'm grateful for that. I did my master's degree at Arizona State University uh, the greatest university in the history of the world go devils by the way and i read a lot of feminist theory there and i'm grateful for feminist theory but uh, a lot of feminist theorists made the error of saying genders are equal because they're the same see that's where i disagree because God created male and female differently. In fact, a woman named Carol Gilligan in 1982 released a book called In a Different Voice. Carol Gilligan is a feminist theorist. She's in her 80s now. She teaches at NYU. In In a Different Voice was published by Harvard University Press. Have you heard of Harvard? The ASU of the East, great school. Um, And in a different voice, Carol Gilligan reminds us that genders are different. Males and females are different. And if you say that they're equal because they're the same, what you do inadvertently is you rob women and you rob men of the unique contribution that they can make to the world because of their femininity or because of their masculinity. So Carol Gilligan says they're not the same. They are equal, but they're not the same. And every other discipline has recognized that since then, so Theology, psychiatry, uh, psychology, anthropology, recognize that men and women are different. Males and females are different. Do you know why they're different? Because God created it that way with gender distinctions. Let's see the second aspect of God's creation ideal. God blessed them, male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, the New Lucas translation is have sex and make babies, that's really what that is, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, this isn't just about naming the animals in the garden. This isn't just about tending the garden. Uh, Theologians and scholars call this the cultural mandate. What God is charging man to do is, is create culture create art, create music, subdue the earth, have dominion, build it up, create culture. But God identifies something that's going to be really, really challenging for man in this particular situation in order to achieve this cultural mandate and do what God is calling him to do. And here's the thing that's wrong. God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. Now, I would say that this is one of the most obvious statements in all of scripture. Like, I don't need the Bible to tell me it's not good for men to be alone. I don't. Men, think of the dumbest decision you've ever made in your life. Did you run that by a woman first to see if it was okay? No, no you didn't, no you didn't. It is not good for men to be alone. So God says, in order for man to achieve the cultural mandate, I will make him a helper fit For him, Some of your Bible translations might say suitable helpmate. And this helper fit that God will eventually make becomes woman. Now, we need to understand what this word helper fit means because it's so critical to understand the nature of women. This first word helper in the original Hebrew, here's the Hebrew characters, and it's transliterated as Zer. And a lot of times we think of the word help as in, you know what, I could push this TV across the stage by myself. I could do that. But it would be easier if I asked Scott here for help. It would make that task easier. That is not this word. It's not this word. It's not as if man could accomplish the cultural mandate on his own, but introducing woman into the picture makes it easier for him. Here's how I know that. Because this word is there the vast majority of times that it's used in the Old Testament, it's used of God himself. He is our help, our ever-present help in times of trouble. Have you heard that before? That's help. That's helper. It's not as if we could accomplish this thing on our own and God comes in and makes it easier. We can't accomplish it. We're going to lose unless God helps us. It's the same notion here when it comes to helper fit. Man cannot accomplish the cultural mandate unless he has a helper. A couple nights ago, uh, my daughter, the one that you just met here a minute ago, I only have one kid, but yeah, so she's three and a half years old, and she calls out from her bed two nights ago, like our third night here in Arizona. She calls out from her bed, 2.30 in the morning, Daddy, Daddy, help, 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 and I'm like, what in the world's going on, so I run into her room. And, and she's got a bloody nose. So she's laying in her bed and she's just bleeding all over her sheet, right? And the best part was, this is my kid, right? She's so happy. The, the blood was in the shape of a puppy. And I said, "I said, babe, what happened? She goes, daddy, look, I made a puppy. <laughs> Not so concerned about your bloody nose. You're just glad you made a puppy on the sheets. With blood, right? That's great. That's awesome. So she called out for help because she cannot clean her sheets on her own. She cannot change her clothes on her own. She can't get a new pull-up on her own on her own. She needs help in order to accomplish the task that she has at hand. So she called out for help. This is that word. So when woman is introduced into the picture, it's that kind of help. And God says, "I'm going to make a helper fit for him. This is the word fit. It's neged. You can might be translate it a negative or the opposite of, but that's not exactly the, the kind of the root of the word. The root meaning of the word is kind of like this. Let me give you a word picture to help us understand this word. It's as if you've got one puzzle piece over here and you see a little bit of a river, maybe a little bit of a field and a little bit of a tree. And over here, you see the second part of the river and a few more trees and a little bit more of the field. And then when you take those two puzzle pieces and they fit together, you see the bigger picture. You see the whole thing. See, that's that word fit. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the second thing that God's creation ideal included was equality between men and women, male and female. They weren't unequal. They were equal and they had different roles. Woman was a helper fit for him. Let's keep reading. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, when we think of this notion of God taking Adam's rib and making a woman, typically what we think of is... Adam being cut open and one of his physical ribs being taken out, God forming that rib into a woman. You know what I mean? But this word rib in the original language in Hebrew, most often in the Old Testament, it's used to reference a side compartment. So in the temple, Solomon's temple, there was a side compartment and it was called a rib, not a rib, but in the original language, it's Hebrew, and here it's translated rib, and later on in the Old Testament, it's translated side compartment. So John Walton, who is a scholar in Genesis, I don't agree with everything John Walton says, but in this particular case, he helps us understand what's happening here. It's not as if God took a, a piece of Adam and formed that rib into woman, it's as if God split original human being right down the middle and made a side compartment, and with one piece he made man, and with one piece he made woman. And the language in Genesis actually reflects this idea. Look what happens. It says that the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this is not a speech that Adam gives, by the way. It's a song that he sings. This makes total sense, by the way. God creates a naked woman and puts it right, puts her right in front of Adam and says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And Adam goes, oh, yes, Jesus. Ah, ah, ah." That wasn't in my notes. (laughs) The reason I point this out is because the language reflects this. This word man is Adam. It's where we get our word Adam from when we say Adam and Eve. But this word man is not Adam, it's Ish. It's a totally different word. It's not even derivative of this. It's as if there was one original human being split right down the middle, as John Walton would say, and one side was made woman and one side was made man. Again, this is, not, this is metaphorical, but, but it's an understanding that in God's original design, the creation ideal, there was interdependence between man and woman. Interdependence. They were to rely on each other. They were to work together. They were to lean on each other. And our sin has been screwing this up by changing the prefix for a very long time. We change the prefix to self-dependence, don't we? Or we change the prefix to co-dependence. That's a fun one. But in God's creation ideal, he created man and woman, husband and wife, to be interdependent. Now pay really close attention to this verse from genesis chapter 2 because we're going to come back to it here in a moment therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife this is god officiating the very first wedding ceremony right there in the garden with adam and eve and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed understand this is not just physical nudity this is man and woman being able to be totally transparent with one another in other words god's original design his creation ideal included trust and vulnerability trust and vulnerability. Man could be totally vulnerable with woman. Woman could be totally vulnerable with man and not be judged. They were naked and they were not ashamed. (laughs) If you were here over the summer, when Tom Schrader was here, anybody was here when Tom Schrader was here over the summer? Schrader's brilliant, I love listening to Schrader. And I was here that week, I listened to Tom Schrader that week and he made this comment, I think it was very good. He said that intimacy is the feeling that I can disclose all of who I am to another person and not be judged. Let me say it one more time. Intimacy is the understanding or the feeling that I can disclose all of who I am to another person and not be judged. See, in God's creation ideal, man and woman could disclose all of who they were to one another and not be judged. So, God's creation ideal included gender distinctions, equality interdependence and trust and vulnerability. Unfortunately, once again, that lasted for two chapters. And in the third chapter, sin entered the world and wrecked God's creation ideal. So interdependence became codependence and self-dependence. Equality became inequality. We're living in that now. Uh, All of the things that God created were wrecked. The cosmos were wrecked. Relationships were wrecked. And again, the Old Testament just becomes a chronicle of all those things. So by the time the Roman Empire rolls around and Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, understand that he's not writing to a church that's experiencing God's creation ideal. He's writing to a church that's living in the first century Roman Empire, which was really messed up, by the way. People didn't get married for love. They got married for money. That woman's got a lot of goats. I should marry her. Men were able to divorce their wives like that. They were able to, they were allowed to abuse their wives. And women railed back against that as well they should. And everything was broken and busted up. So Paul enters into the picture and he writes to the church in Ephesus. And he starts to talk to husbands and wives. He starts by talking to wives. Then he talks to husbands. Then he concludes with this kind of wrap-up statement. But here's what I want to do. I want to work from last to first. I want to start with his conclusion then I want to talk to husbands, then I want to talk to wives. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. In case you're wondering, the answer is yes, that was my sermon intro. So I should be able to have you out of here by three, early 2018. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to start with Paul's conclusion in verse 31, and I want you to Pay really close attention. Paul says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Does this sound familiar already? How how many of you does this sound familiar already? Raise your hand. Good, good, because we just read it in Genesis, right? And the two shall become one flesh. Here's why this is critical. Paul's not saying, I'm giving you something new here. Paul's saying, I wanna help you return to the way God originally designed it. You know, Paul and the rest of the authors of the New Testament, they don't even come in with new ideas. They come in with old ideas, just said a different way. That's all it is. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And when they become one flesh, I want to instruct husbands and wives as to how to interact with one another and how to work out those principles of equality and interdependence and all the things we just talked about. So let's start with husbands. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I learned about this in the fourth grade. This is one of them, their analogies. And so what Paul is saying is husbands are to wives as Christ is to the church. What he's saying to husbands in the room, to me and to you, husbands, is you figure out how Jesus loves his church. You watch Jesus, you learn from Jesus, and then you imitate Jesus and love your wife that way. That's a tall order. <laughs> I mean, that's near impossible, isn't it? outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul wants to get specific here. He wants to tell us how is it that Christ loves his church so that we as husbands can imitate Christ. He says, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Jesus did not just give up nine holes for her. Jesus did not just give up a hobby for her on occasion. Jesus did not just give up one night of the week for date night. He gave all of himself. He left the comfort and glory of heaven to love his church sacrificially. In other words, Jesus' love for his church is a sacrificial love. Therefore, husbands, love your wife with a sacrificial love. Give yourself up for her. I don't wanna get into details here and I don't wanna give you a whole bunch of examples and ways that you can practically apply this. All I wanna do is charge and exhort husbands that it is your job to love your wife sacrificially, to take up your cross, to die to yourself, to give it up and to love her sacrificially. That's the model of Jesus and that's what we are charged to do. Let's keep going. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is just a $2 theological word for making them more like Jesus. So that Jesus might sanctify his bride, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy that is set apart and without blemish. In other words, Jesus' love for his church is a sanctifying love. He loves you and me in such a way that it makes us more like him, not less. When he engages with us, loves us, wraps his arms around us, it causes us to grow in his likeness and think like him, feel like him, talk like him, act like him. So husbands, your love for your wife should be a sanctifying love. Are you loving her, interacting with her, conversing with her, engaging with her in a way that makes her more or less like Jesus? When you come home later than you said you were going to come home, does she respond in a Christ-like manner? Probably doesn't tee her up very well to do that, does it? When you raise your voice to her and get angry with her and get short with her, it probably doesn't tee her up to be more like Jesus, does it? But because Jesus' love for his church is a sanctifying love, our love for our wives should be a sanctifying love. We should love our wife in such a way that she becomes more like Jesus, that she pursues the dream that God put in her heart, that she pursues her calling and ministry, that she contributes and gives back to the church, and that because we are in her life, she is more and not less like Jesus 12 months, 12 years, and 120 years from now. Our love for our spouse should be a sanctifying love. Paul gives us one more example. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is fascinating to me because Paul kind of plays on our sin a little bit. And Here's the deal. There ain't nobody on the planet that loves you more than you love you. There ain't nobody on the planet that loves me more. I love me some me. I really do. And Paul says, okay, the way you treat yourself, the way you love yourself, the way you cherish yourself and nourish yourself, you should do the same thing. He says, keep going. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Because Christ's love for the church is a cherishing love, your love for your wife should be a cherishing love. Let me put this into kind of a practical, applicable words here. All of your sexual thoughts should be for your wife. Your checkbook should be for your wife. Jesus gave everything for the church because he cherishes his bride. He gave everything because he loves and pours out all that he has onto his bride. That's how we should love our spouse, our wife. Now, Now that we understand God's creation ideal, now that we understand the call for husbands, let's look at the call for wives. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, he's continuing the analogy here, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this particular pericope or paragraph or section is really fascinating to me because just before this verse, verse 22, in verse 21, Paul tells us that all Christians should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, if you're a Christ follower and there's no place in your life where you are regularly practicing submission to another person, you need to fix that need to fix that. We should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he says all Christians should submit to one another. Then he talks specifically to wives and to husbands. But I find it fascinating because I actually went back and translated this from the original Greek. I translated it word for word. Just so you know, your New Testament, your Bible, the second half anyway, or second second part, the New Testament, was written in Greek. And when it's translated, it's translated in phrases rather than word for word. So I went back and translated this word for word, and I found something really fascinating that I want to share with you and just kind of submit before you. So let's take a look at the NLT, the New Lucas translation of the um, of Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 24. Paul says, submitting another in reverence Christ, that's plural, submitting another, submitting to one another in reverence Christ, wives submit one's own husbands, Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ head the church, his body, himself, savior. It's a little choppy because it's word for word. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, as the church submits Christ, so also wives submit in all or everything their husbands. Here's why I find this fascinating, because this word submit and this word submit both appear in the original language. They are there this word submit in brackets and grayed out and this word submit do not appear in the original language they're implied so when paul says that we should submit to one another and he says that the church should should submit to christ or does submit to christ he explicitly uses the word submit but then when he talks about wives submitting to husbands it's implied now it's clearly implied And the translators are right to have it there, but it doesn't appear in the original language that exact word, it's implied. Now, I wanna show you another Daryl Delhousay trick that I learned from Daryl. I'm gonna leave the Bible over here. And I'm just going to tell you my opinion, okay? This is my opinion. And I'm just gonna submit it to you for your consideration. Here's what I think is happening in this passage. I think Paul is far more interested in us being in awe of Christ's love for his church. I really do. I really think that that his goal is that we would walk away and our affections for Jesus would be stirred and our worship for Jesus would be stirred because we read it and we go, he loves his church so much and not just that, but he invites us the one and only earthly relationship that represents Christ's love for his church as husbands and wives. Not pastors and flock, not brothers, not sisters, not parents and children, One relationship and one relationship only. Husbands and wives. And we are invited to reflect Jesus' love to the world through that relationship. Now, that's pretty cool. Now, that word submit is supposed to be there. It's clearly implied. But understand that Paul's goal here really is to stir our affections for Jesus and that that affection for Jesus would overflow into our marriage. What happens, unfortunately, is that When we read the Bible, and we do this a lot, we we take modern understandings of words and concepts and we superimpose them over the top of the Bible. You ever had that happen before? And and that's not healthy and helpful. And the reason why is because we're 2,000 years removed from when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. 2,000 years. We've got to fill in some time gaps a little bit. I mean, we're hundreds of thousands of miles away from the Roman Empire. It's not hundreds of thousands, is it? It's not, no it's not, that's like the moon, isn't it? It's the moon, hundreds of thousands, okay. We're miles away, okay. It's a metric system, you don't know, it's kilometers. I'm from Canada, so we're miles away historically geographically culturally very separated and so when we take modern notions especially of this word submit and we understand the bible through our modern filter we misinterpret and misunderstand what the bible has to say so i've found people with a modern understanding of submission trying to superimpose it over the top of ephesians and they get angry with the charge they're like i can't do that and that's ridiculous and and that's oppressive towards women or whatever else or they just ignore it altogether. I don't even want to talk about it because I'm not sure what to do with it. And the reason why is they take a modern notion of submission and superimpose it over the top of it. Let me give you an example. Does anybody watch MMA or UFC? Anybody watch that? Raise your hand if you are or if you're willing and able to say that you watch UFC or MMA. Raise your hand. Good. You're a sinner. All right, we are a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinner too. I like MMA. I like UFC. I like when like two animals that look like men get put into a ring and they just like tear each other to pieces. I think that's great. I think they're fantastic athletes. I think they're really good at their craft. I enjoy that. You don't have to enjoy that and you can sue me if you want. It's fine. But I like that. And there's a couple of different ways to win a UFC fight. You can knock the other fighter out. That means you punch or kick or something and they just go down and they're totally unconscious. Or there's a technical knockout. That's when a referee engages in the situation and says, no, 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 no. This person is out on their feet. This fight is over. Uh, You can win by decision. Holly Holm lost by decision last night, right? Cyborg beat her by decision last night. So you can win by decision. Or you can win by submission, you can win by submission. Here's what this means. It means that one fighter outwits, outlasts, or outstrongs the other fighter. And they put him in some kind of crazy Ric Flair figure four leg lock or something. And that person says, I submit. I tap out. I'm submitting to your power. I'm submitting to all of that. And so what we do is we go, oh, that's what submission is. So that's what God is calling wives to do. Submit. But can I assure you of something? Marriage is not an MMA fight. Look, and and if your marriage looks like this, we have some counselors here that we would love to connect you with. It is not an MMA fight. Is this not the most obvious statement anybody's ever... You know what you're thinking to yourself? This guy's good. This guy's good. When Jamie leaves, we need to get this guy because this is rich. This is good stuff. See, we have a problem when we take a modern understanding of submission and superimpose it over the top of scripture. You want want me to give you the the biblical understanding of submission, you ready? Have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is what I love about Jesus. Not only does he give husbands a model to love their wives well, he also gives wives a model for submission. Do you see it? Therefore, anytime you see a therefore in the scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore, for this reason, because he emptied himself, humbled himself, became obedient, God exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, There's a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. In my opinion, it's the best marriage book out there. And uh, his wife, Kathy Keller, writes a chapter in there. And in that chapter, she hypothesizes and wonders that if Jesus submitted himself and humbled himself, and for that reason, God exalted him to the highest place, is it possible that wives submit themselves now and the husband's role is to groom them for ultimate and complete exaltation? Wives, wouldn't you like that? <laughs> and that's not me. If you want to argue with me, argue with Kathy Keller. I'm just putting that out there so you can talk about that over lunch. Ruin your day. It'd be great. <laughs> so here's what, I want, here's what I want to do. Because we've looked at God's creation ideal and because we've looked at Paul's exhortation to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, I, I want to come up with a cogent biblical definition for biblical headship and for biblical submission. Before we do that, I wanna give you two caveats, two quick caveats, then we'll do the definitions, a couple of practical examples, and then I'll let you go. Here's the two caveats. First, submission applies to marriage only. Did you catch that that Paul said, wives submit to your own husbands? Did you catch that? Women in the room, if there is a man in your life who is not your husband, who is requesting that you submit to anything, you should run and not walk away from that situation. Submission does not apply to the marketplace. It doesn't apply to sports. It doesn't apply to money. It doesn't apply to anything else. It applies to marriage only. Second is submission is always a choice. It's always a choice. It's fascinating because in chapter 6, Paul begins to talk to slaves and masters. He begins to talk to children and their parents. And he does not say to slaves, submit to your masters. He does not say to children, submit to your parents. He does not say to us, submit to God. He uses the word obey. Slaves, obey your masters. Children, obey your parents. You, obey God. That word obey is used countless times in the Old and New Testament. This word submission is only used 13 times in the New Testament, only 13. And it's when a person of equal stature, equal, the skill equal in the eyes of God chooses to willfully place themselves in a submitted role to another person. So what that means, men, because submission is always a choice, your job is to love your spouse like Christ loved the church. Your job is not to make sure she's submitting to you. That's above your pay grade. That's not your job. Your job is to love her like Jesus loves his church. So submission is always a choice. So here, let's do this. Let's, let's define biblical headship, biblical submission. Biblical headship, is completely loving another. (laughs) According to God's creation ideal, according to the exhortation from Ephesians 5, biblical headship is completely loving another. Sacrificial love, cherishing love, tender love, humble love, servant love, completely loving another. And that's men, husbands specifically, what we are called to do or our wives, completely loving another, giving all of who we are to that individual. And wives' submission, biblical submission, is allowing another to love you completely. It's completely allowing another to love you completely. I'll give you a way this works itself out practically in my marriage here in a minute, but biblical submission is completely allowing another to love you completely. It's not railing against that. It's not pushing back against that. It's saying, I will render myself vulnerable and trust you and give myself unto you and allow you to love me completely. Practically speaking, I wanna talk to three people and then I'll let you go. I'm gonna talk to single men, single women, and then married men. Single men. When it comes to preparing yourself for marriage, to preparing yourself to be the kind of leader that God has called you to be, the kind of servant that God has called you to be, right now in your life, you need to learn to love. You need to learn to love, single men especially. I meet so many men in their 20s that absolutely are totally underwhelming (laughs) because they sit around and play video games all day. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, you're really good at Doom. or what, what, Do people play that anymore? <laughs> Super Mario or something? I don't know. Man, you've watched, you've watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy 26 times. You are awesome. You are really cool. Like, honestly, put the video game controller down, call that pretty girl, and ask her on a date. It's not complicated. Single women, you're welcome. In the meantime, single men, learn to love. Learn, oh, go back one, go back one, because that, that's weird if I don't explain it. Go back one. <laughs> just, just a side note, it's been really nice being here. Um, you guys have been so sweet. Uh, learn to love, learn to serve. Lord knows when you get in your marriage you're going to serve. Why not start learning now? Like learn to serve in biblical community, learn to serve in intergenerational community. Don't hang out with people that are two years older than you and two years younger than you. Get some older people in your life that are further down the journey that are gonna help you grow in the ways that you love others sacrificially. Learn to do that now, single men, so that you can be the type of husband that God has called you to be. Women, find a lover. And and please don't let culture hijack this term and make it purely sexual. Find someone who loves you the way Jesus loves his church. Find someone who loves you the way Jesus loves his church. Oh, better yet, better yet. Find someone who loves others the way Jesus loves his church. Because if they're loving you the way Jesus loves his church, there may be an ulterior motive. You know what I mean? But if they're loving others, sacrificially, serving, cherishing, you can trust that that person, hopefully, as much as you can anyway, that that person. Is growing to be more like Jesus and is going to love you that way. Now, check this out single women, you are probably not gonna find a Christ exalting, Christ like lover of God and lover of others who's gonna love you like Jesus loves his church. You're probably not gonna find that guy on Tinder. <laughs> I do not care how many times you swipe right, you ain't gonna find that guy. And look, if you do, I will give you my next paycheck. Which I get paid in Canadian dollars, so it's only like six bucks, American. so... But find a lover, find someone who loves well, and it's not gonna be up in the club, it's not gonna be on Tinder, it's not gonna be on whatever else is out there, MySpace. Do they still have that, MySpace? No, they don't, do they? It's not gonna be there, it's gonna be in the context of Christian community. Here's the last thing I wanna tell you, and I wanna speak to married men, is one phrase, one simple four-word phrase that has really helped frame this for me in 11 years, submission, and framed it for Amy, and it's a phrase (laughs) that. That I use on a regular basis in my house. And you can use it if you want. God gave you eyes, plagiarize. Here it is, submit to my love. Submit to my love. It helps me understand what biblical submission is. Here's what that looks like for me. I'll be unloading the dishwasher, Amy will be in the other room. She said, babe, you don't have to do that. You've got stuff to work on. I said, babe, I want to love you in this way. I'm serving you in this way. I want you to submit to my love. I'll yell it sometimes too, submit to my love. <laughs> She doesn't like it as much as I do, but I think it's (laughs) fine. And it's not just little things. It can be bigger things. A few weeks ago, Amy was sick, and we have Kaya, who's high energy all the time. We've got a 10-year-old Weimer on her who's high energy all the time. Amy was not able to care for them well that particular day, and so I said, I'm going to take them both. We're going to go to the park. We're going to get wiggles out. And she goes, no, babe, you've got your sermon. You've got other things. And I said, I want you to stay here on the couch, close your eyes, go to sleep, submit to my love. There was just a time, uh, just a couple weeks ago, again, that Amy had a lot of ministry obligations, a lot of people she was kind of pouring into, and she was running on fumes a little bit. And I said, we need to get you in a place where you can be alone, because she's an introvert, get you in a place where people are going to pour into you. She goes, yeah, I know, but I have these things, and I want to do this, and I have these obligations. I said, that's great, I love your heart, but I'm asking you to submit to my love. I'm loving you completely, and I'm asking you to completely allow me to love you right now. Submit to my love. One more picture of biblical submission for the church to Christ, and then I'll let you go. So, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's having a Passover meal with his disciples, and he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God. In other words, he could have said, Submit to my authority submit to my divinity, submit to any number of things, submit to the fact that I am going to God and come from God, submit to all that. But he didn't. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, (coughs) and took a towel and tied it around his waist. And when he did, he poured water into a basin and began to wash muck and dirt and animal feces off the disciples feet he took the lowest position in the house the position of a slave and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him then he came to simon peter who said lord you wash my feet am i going to allow you to love me completely jesus was completely loving his church represented here by peter and Peter says, What am I Jesus says, What I'm doing now, you do not un- do not un- understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter says, You shall never wash my feet. In other words, I'm not submitting to your love. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I will completely allow you to love me completely. Understand that these two were not dating, that's not what we're talking about here. This is Jesus and his church. Jesus laying aside everything, loving his bride sacrificially, represented here by Peter, sacrificially, tenderly, cherishing all those things that we talked about, humbly serving, and the church of God, represented by Peter, submitting completely to the love of Christ. That's what your marriage should look like. That's the call of the scripture. And I hope that helps. Let's pray. God, thank you for this one relationship that we have on the planet of husbands and wives and the way that our relationships represent you and your love to the world. God, for single men in the room, would you teach us to love well and serve well and prepare us for that moment you're gonna bring that person into our life that we will spend our life with. For the women in the room, I pray that you would give them courage and confidence not to settle but to find an individual who is Christ-exalting and loves you above all. For the men in the room that may have retreated emotionally from their spouse and not sacrificed and not loved tenderly and cherished their spouse, would you cause them to repent and move towards their spouse even today? And for the women in the room who have railed up against this passage, excused themselves or just simply ignored it, my prayer today is that you would give them a different picture of what it means To submit and allow their husbands to love them completely. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and for your presence here by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, God's people said, Amen. 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 Nice to see you. Bye.